Hi, and thanks for hitting the snooze button. I'm Neil Headley. I was prepared to write off a literal lifelong battle with insomnia as just being a part of the gig when I started more than 30 years of morning television and radio. Well, I dug a little bit deeper and found out that I had a lot more to learn. So in this series, we're going to help you fix your sleep by figuring out why mine is so horribly broken. And then maybe we can stumble upon some answers together. You are going to love the guest this week. I know it's going to be a fun show when I'm done an interview and then I immediately spend weeks on the internet afterward researching out the things that they talked about because I just can't help but consume more knowledge. So we'll get into that in a second with Dr. Sarah Mednick. I'll tell you all about her. But first, a couple of little quick pieces of housekeeping. I need your help. I need you to do something for me, uh, and it's rare I ask for stuff on the show, but I'm asking. So please do me a favor and indulge me. Go to thesnoozebutton.com, and I need you to click at least one of the three links that are on that page. One is for a feedback by email section where you can click a link, send us an email. Let us know what you like about the show, what you don't like about the show, what you want more or less of. If there's a guest you would love for us to try and get on the show, uh, if there is a topic that you would like us to consider, any of those kinds of things. Drop us a note. Let us know. The address is right there on that page. Or under it, there's a section marked ratings and reviews. You click that link and it will take you to uh, your favorite podcast app where you would be able to leave a review for the show, however many stars you want to give us. I mean, five is great, but not everybody thinks it's a five-star show. But what the rating system allows people to do is if they haven't listened to it before, it lets them determine whether or not this is something they want to invest, you know, as is the case this week, 40 minutes of their life in. And it allows them to make those decisions based on what other people are saying. We'd appreciate that too. Or if you really want to get into supporting the show, there is a third section underneath that says support the show. And that is actual monetary donations to support the show. But like any good crowdfunding program, we've got a bunch of different tiers of support. And it goes everything from, you know, us thanking you on the show for being a part of the show or to us mentioning your name in the book in an acknowledgement section or even having your name be part of the credits in the documentary series. What? I didn't tell them about the documentary series yet. Well, the documentary series doesn't happen if more people don't click on the link, though. Anyway, uh, we'll we'll cover that some other time. Um, So for right now, I've got to introduce you to this week's guest. Uh, And and we're very excited to have her on. Her name is Dr. Sarah Mednick. She is a professor of cognitive neuroscience at the University of California, Irvine, and the author of the book, Take a Nap, Change Your Life. Um, We get into everything surrounding the world of the nap here and you're in for some perhaps dissonance if you will in terms of some of the attitudes you might have had about naps whether they're good whether they're bad what things help what things don't whether naps will interfere with your sleep at night what the hell is a coffee nap and is that even worth exploring all of those things coming up with dr sarah mednick Sarah, I am going to give you the very first same question that everyone who's ever been on the snooze button gets, and it goes like this. How did you sleep last night? Not bad, I would say. Uh, I think I, yeah, I had a glass of wine, and I think that kind of put me sleepy, but then it didn't let me sleep particularly well. So it was like, you know, I would say it was like a six. Well, wine is one of those things, right, with people, because there are countless people, if you go to the... um, 
the more interesting corners of uh, the sleep web where people don't necessarily have all the latest information. People will say, oh, yeah, I have a couple glasses of wine every night. It helps me fall asleep without recognizing that it messes with their architecture, right? Yeah. I mean, there's so many interesting ways that people try to use things to get to sleep, right? And and alcohol is one of those that it definitely does increase slow wave sleep. I mean, there's definitely multiple studies that show that it does and it, you know, and it decreases the time it takes to get to sleep, but it also is addictive and you, it's hard to stop, you know, and then, um, so then you continuously kind of need a little bit more. Um, and I think that's a slippery slope. But then, as you say, also, it it robs you of REM sleep. And so then, you know, then you end up waking up and have kind of fragmented sleep throughout the night, even though you've just gotten to sleep easier. So it, it's not um, a silver bullet, I'll say, in terms of getting people to sleep better. Well, and I'll hearken back to one of the episodes from season one, if people want to dig around on the website for a second and look for uh, Laura Boyarskaita from the University of Oslo, where we talked a while back about how if your interest is in kicking in your glymphatic system, um, REM sleep is very important. So anything that's going to mess with that part of your architecture is important as well. One of the reasons I wanted to drag you onto the show is because of this study that I saw that when I first posted a link to it on Twitter, I didn't know it was connected to you uh, until I saw that you responded to it. And, and it's an interesting study uh, about kids and napping. Now, anything that surrounds napping immediately gets my attention. (laughs) Um, But talk to me about this study and what we've learned from it. Great. Uh, It was a wonderful study to do because I have always had a sleep lab where I actually put people to sleep. um, And uh, that's how we started working, started working with naps. Um, but what was exciting was to work at this population level, um, epidemiological level, where we got to work with thousands and thousands of people who nap regularly. Um, and in China, that's actually the case. Um, so my colleague, uh, Yu Hong Jiang, she um, has been doing research. She's in the Department of Nursing at UPenn, and she's been doing large epidemiology studies um Looking, I think it, um, what was some, some toxins in the water, I believe, or something like that. But what she found was that in, in, in adolescence, and what she found was that, you know, actually the weirdest factor is that everybody was napping. And she thought, I wonder, that's so interesting because what she found, um, she was recording how much they would nap and she kept seeing like the naps really do seem to make a difference. And so she knew I worked in naps and she's like, Hey, do you want to take a look at this data with me? And it's an amazing data set because it's like around 4,000 kids and, um, from fourth grade to sixth grade. And it looks at how frequently the kids are napping, um, and how well they perform in academia, in IQ, um, in their levels of happiness and grit and kind of um, aggressivity, you know, how aggressive they are or how depressed and anxious they are. So all the kind of measures that you really would like to really have as a scientist to see, well, how, what is the effect of sleep on, on behavior? And here it was. Um, and it's interesting because it was you know, it's conducted in China where different from, um, America and I don't know about Canada, but, but there's, you know, napping is really not, um, on the top of people's list when they think of people who are, you know, really 
go-getters or productive, you know, napping is considered something you do when you just don't feel like working or something like that, right? And it's for the lazy and it's something that I've been sort of fighting that that battle um, for a long time saying actually napping is really great for you. So in China, people nap from, you know, cradle to the grave. It's a really strong nap positive society. Um, and there's nap time in school all the way through college. And then you're even allowed to nap at work. Um, so it was a great opportunity to then look in, you know, in this really culturally pos nap positive society, how is napping helping the kids across all these different measures? So, okay, there's a lot to unpack there. Let me go back to something you said right out of the very beginning when you were summarizing the, the paper. Um, when you say that the kids have more grit, I'm assuming that what we mean by grit is they're more resilient and better yeah. able to deal with stress. That's exactly right. Right. And so so what we were found was that um, there's there's all these different um, measurements that are sort of validated measures of happiness and grit and um, internalizing behaviors, which is kind of depression and anxiety, you know, sort of negative features turned on yourself versus outwardly negative, which is more the aggressive um, um, kind of negative features that, you know, people can develop. And so we looked at all those, but she also looked at how well they perform in school, how they do on, you know, on on different math and English and Chinese um, uh, uh, classes. Um, and then also they did some IQ tests, which are, so it's kind of the state measures of how well they're doing cognitively, but also the trait measures of how they're well they're doing cognitively in the IQ tests. Um, and then she saw, well, are they napping seven days a week? Are they, you know, and so that she napped how many days a week they would nap. And there's kids who are napping seven days a week. Um, and she napped how long were, she, she mapped how long were the naps from, you know, 30 minutes or less, 60 minutes or less, um, up to like 120 minutes. Um, uh, you know, there, I think she went up to 100, 100 minutes, or 120 minutes. So, you know, within that kind of, you know, two hour range or more. Um, and what she found was really interesting. Um, I guess what we found together was that in the terms of the cognitive performance, the measurements of the trait cognition, which is how, um, you know, how you are, you know, your IQ, um, uh, the, the, the kind of things that don't change very much um, with how well you're sleeping night after night, those things didn't really change with sleep. So however many nights, um, however many days a week they napped, they still had the same IQ. It wasn't very much related. But for things like academic, academic performance where, you know, you study for a test, you sleep that night, you take that test, um, and the sleep really matters with how well you're um, performing academically, there was really strong evidence that the more the kids were napping, um, the more frequently they napped and the longer they napped, the better they were doing in school. Um, we saw the same effects with grit, interestingly, like the more resilient people are, the more tougher they are in terms of life's challenges, um, the more frequently they were napping and the longer they were napping. We saw the same thing with happiness. Um, and we saw a decrease in all those negative features, such as internalizing behaviors, those kind of depression, anxiety, um, uh, but also in the aggressive behaviors, the externalizing behaviors, the more they nap that they, we showed a decrease in those behaviors. 
Do we need to approach naps the same way that we approach sleep? And and I hope you know what I mean when I ask that question, because when we talk about sleeping at night, when we're going to lie down and, and hopefully, fingers crossed, get our seven to nine hours, um, there's a whole talk about sleep hygiene that needs to happen and screens and all of these different things. Do we need to approach a nap the same way? So if I'm going to, if I have a nap that I know I'm going to take at, say, 1230, do I need to not be in front of a screen starting at 11 or 1130? How does that work? Well, we've, it's, it's, it's a great question, right? So is, are we prone to the same kind of light interference and noise interference and all sorts of things that we are during the night? And, and I, I believe that evolution has taken care of these issues for us, which is that we're actually evolved to be able to sleep in the day with a lot more stimulation than we are at night. So we've done a study where we looked at, um, we actually put people um, put goggles on people that would give them bright light um, while they're trying to sleep. And we found that people, there was no differences between nappers with and without the bright light. Um, and they weren't, they were, I think they were a green light, which is right on the edge of the spectrum of the circadian rhythm, which, which actually should, I forgot if they were green or blue, but anyway, it's, it's right within the range of light uh, wavelengths that would be sensitive to the um, to the circadian cells um, in the retina, and it was really interesting to see that in fact lighting doesn't really seem to hurt you when you're when you're napping, um, and that we're able to nap with. Um, high levels of stimulation around us. Um, whereas if that was happening at night and you had somebody wearing bright goggles and shown them light, they would absolutely have trouble sleeping. So we're wired to nap then. Indeed. Yeah. And, and, and it seems that not everybody actually is wired to nap because there are some people who really really hate napping. Um, and uh, those people, we've done a study looking at people, we've done multiple studies looking at people who are claimed to be habitual nappers and people who claim to really hate napping. And it looks as though the people who hate napping just don't really get any benefit from it. And they wake up, um, you know, they don't show any of the cognitive benefits. Um, and they wake up feeling crappy and, uh, you know, and, and, and the reason probably is because they go into this deep, heavy sleep and, um, the nappers stay in quite light sleep. They can get into deep sleep, but they rapidly come back into lighter sleep and it allows them to wake up feeling refreshed. Whereas the people who are non-nappers, and if you give them a nap, um, they wake up really from that deep sleep and it makes them have a very hard time transitioning to waking, which is bright lights, big city, you know, like, you know, multitasking and a lot of, you know, demands on them right away, but they're still, their brains are basically still in deep sleep. So, um, it makes them pretty irritable. Does a nap mess with my ability to get nighttime sleep? Yeah, this is a this is a really important question, and I think it often um, there's a kind of a, a textbook answer which is yes, and that that's actually not true. Um, it's it's a nuanced you know you really need to think about this as a nuanced way is is when when you wake up in the morning you start to have you start to increase your need to get back to sleep and that's called sleep pressure and what that sleep pressure is is your need for something called slow wave sleep and as you 
go further and further, closer and closer to your bedtime, your need for slow wave sleep is very, very high. And so if you take a nap close to your bedtime that's longer than 20 minutes, you're going to get into slow wave sleep and you're going to decrease um, that ability to get into sleep when you actually want to go to bed. So that's actually true. You can rob yourself of nighttime sleep if you take, say, an hour nap in the late afternoon or even a 45-minute nap in the late afternoon or early evening. But if you take a nap earlier in the day between, say, 1 and 3 o'clock, and it's a nap that's around, you know, half an hour, um, Actually, any nap around half an hour is not really going to be robbing you of slow wave sleep because you're only having mostly stage two sleep in that nap. So, so although, you know, if you're being treated for insomnia and they're doing sleep restriction on you and they say don't nap, you know, just listen to the doctor and stick with the program. But for most people who are, you know, just regular, um, who's, you know, who sleep okay, um, a 20-minute nap at any time of the day is really not going to interfere with your sleep. Um, and if you nap earlier in the day and you nap for a little bit longer, say 45 minutes, an hour, even an hour and a half, that has, we haven't shown any differences in nighttime sleep. Are you a proponent of the caffeine nap, you know, where you grab a cup of coffee and then have your nap knowing that if you're going to wake up a half an hour or 40 minutes later, that's right when the caffeine is getting into your system? Definitely not. Um, I really? think it's a, yeah. I think it's a really bad idea because um, caffeine is addictive, and uh, if you start so so when you go to sleep, the the point of going to sleep is to wake up feeling refreshed. If you start to have an a signal to your body that this is when I wake up, this is when I need caffeine, you will start to need that caffeine and feel the same way people feel when they wake up in the morning after they've had a full night of sleep. This is the time where you actually are, you're at your most, you should be at your most alert. But because we've trained ourselves to drink caffeine right when we wake up, we feel groggy until we get that caffeine. We are not, we do not need caffeine, but we create a need for caffeine. So, so what you want to do is actually, you know, stop drinking caffeine. Um, you don't need it after a nap. When you wake up, that's, you, you know, the point of getting that nap was to increase alertness. So you don't need the caffeine. You're actually creating a false grogginess due to a withdrawal symptom, um, because you're addicted to caffeine and that's what makes you think you need the caffeine, but you don't need the caffeine. You just need to sleep. Oh, I, okay. See, that's going to be one of those that people are going to come back to and they're going to ask me questions about it because there's so many people that talk about the benefits of the caffeine nap or the coffee nap. I, so thank you for clearing that up. Now I'm conscious of those people are addicted to caffeine. Of course, yeah. they're going to tell you that they could stop any time, right? <laughs> that's what that's about. Um, I'm hyper-conscious of orthosomnia, you know, and this idea that um, people who – people become so obsessed with the quality of their sleep and what their Fitbit or whatever it is says that uh, that creates its own special brand of insomnia. So when it comes to napping – you talked about how there are people who are wired for naps and there are people who aren't. How do I know whether I'm wired to nap or not? And for example, if I try to take an hour long nap and I don't feel any benefit from it, 
How do I know whether that's because I'm a person who's not wired to nap or it's just that I'm not napping, quote unquote, right? I think that um, it's okay to just feel um, like I'm not the I'm not a napper, you know, like I, I think it's OK to have a bad nap and say this didn't work for me. I'll try it a few times more. But if I still feel the same way, I'm not a napper. Um, I think that there's there's a sense of like people are constantly stressing themselves out about doing things incorrectly um, because there's so many experts that tell you, you know, this is good for you. So you should do this. But but really, I mean, I. I I've done so many studies now looking at people who are not nappers. And we even had a training where we had people napping for a month, people who are not nappers, and they never improved um, um, their naps. They, their naps still had the same sleep architecture. They also never showed any cognitive benefits from it. They never felt better from a nap. So I think that if you have given it a try um, and, you know, you've given it the old whatever university you're at, however, try, um, and it didn't ever seem to work for you, you're probably not a napper and you need to find, you definitely need to take a break. You know, I think that that is universally true is that we cannot continue grinding through the day. Um, you know, I have my early research showed that if you continue to do the same thing all day long, you're going to get worse and worse and worse and worse. And, you know, for me, the studies showed that because we didn't actually look at exercise, but when we put a nap in the middle of the day, people were able to maintain their best performance and even in some cases get better than their best performance. Um, and we tried different other things like trying to bribe them and, you know, with more money or, you know, telling them like they really need to get their performance back down to, you know, back to up to where it was in the morning and they never could. And the only thing that could help them was a nap. But the truth is we didn't do exercise. We didn't try, a, you know, meditation. We didn't try any of the other things that people do that are also ways of taking a break um, and that are also very, very good for you. Um, you know, deep breathing, um, do yoga, any of the things that will take you out of what you were doing and get your autonomic nervous system back up again and um, decrease your stress levels and all those different things that, that are so important um, that... Uh, that, that are not sleep. Um, so, so those are also studies that really need to get done is, is more studies that compare different ways of taking a break to sleep. Um, and I'm not surprisingly, uh, for people who've listened to this show before, I'm obsessed now with this idea of figuring out whether or not I'm a napper. So if I'm going to try introducing a nap into my life, um, how, what, what's the feeling that I'm looking for when I wake up, that will point to whether whether I'm a napper or not, a natural napper. Am I going to suddenly wake up from my nap feeling refreshed and ready to go? And if I don't, then I'm not a napper or what is it I'm looking for? Yeah. So I think that I think that the only thing that you need to worry about is if you wake up and you feel really crappy, then you're not a napper. If you wake up and feel pretty good, then probably what happened was you got into very light sleep. Um, you may not have really gotten into really deep restorative sleep. And that's fine. But as long as it, you didn't wake up feeling, you know, bad, those are the people who I would say don't nap, you know. But if you have any kind of positive feeling, and it doesn't have to be amazing, great, because you couldn't train yourself to feel, you know, to, to sleep better um, if you're in that napper category. So it's really only people who really, and, and there really are people who wake up and they feel like 
crap after a nap. And those are the people who I would say, don't do this. It's, it's not, it's, there's no, you're not going to get any benefit from it. But for everybody else who's kind of in that, you know, pretty good to like great state, those are people I would say are nappers. If I'm thinking about napping, do I need, let me, let me think of the right way to word this question. To get the best that I can out of my nap, do I just wake up naturally? Do I set an alarm? What do I do as far as that end of it goes? It's it's very much up to the person. Um, so there, you know, I know that everybody always wants to hear the one right thing to do, but I think with sleep, there just isn't that thing. You know, we really are individuals um, and we need to respect the fact that some people have different circadian rhythms. Some people have different ways that they've gotten used to sleeping. And that's not going to be the same for everybody else. You know, there's some people who um, can nap anywhere and wake up by themselves the second they, you know, they say, I'm going to nap for 15 minutes and boom, they, you know, they nap for 15 minutes without an alarm. Other people... Um, you know, for me, what I will do a lot is I will set an alarm because I'll say, oh my God, I have 20 minutes before this next meeting and I'm so tired. So I'm just going to set an alarm to wake me up like two minutes before the meeting, maybe five minutes before the meeting. And I will get into sleep, like serious sleep. And I'll have that alarm and it'll take me like a a, a few seconds to just really say like, oh my God, okay, now <laughs> I could have slept a lot longer, but I will feel so much better than if I hadn't taken that nap. So um, it really depends on, on, you know, what you have to do right when you wake up. You know, can you be, you know, a little liberal and say like, well, I, I have within this hour, I'll wake up and it's okay if I'm a little late. Or do you need to be somewhere? Do you have a phone call? Do you have a Zoom call? Do you have whatever it is that needs to happen? Um, that's when setting the alarm can is, is essential, right? So that you make sure you don't oversleep. Well, so that at least you've got time to change your clothes before you get on that Zoom call. Um, <laughs> like like we all do. <laughs> right, exactly. So uh, talk to me about, and, and, and you can tell already, I'm, I'm fascinated by this whole topic, um, the stigma of napping and maybe even in a broader perspective, the stigma of sleep. Because let's, let's invent two fictitious people and compare them to each other with that idea of I have this call coming up that I have to be on. If we've got... Bob over here who is exhausted, but he's got a two o'clock call coming up and Bob has three more cups of coffee before the meeting starts and he's ready to go. And well, Bob's a superhero, but over here we've got Mary who's got that uh, call coming up and she's exhausted and so she takes a nap. The stigma will tell you that, well, Mary's obviously lazy um, and, and doesn't know how to manage her time where Bob's a superhero because he downed a bunch of coffee and powered through it. When do we get to a stage where there is no more stigma surrounding napping and sleep and people actually will look at sleep as a tool? It's a great question. You know, I... I Put, I, I wrote a book called Take a Nap, Change Your Life that was based on my um, research on napping and how you know clearly the data showed that you can get a full second day within a day. Like, you know, we showed the same level of cognitive improvement from a nap as from a full night of sleep. This is a 90-minute nap that had both slow sleep and REM sleep. So, and that book came out, um, you know, right at the beginning of 2007, right at the end of 2006. And so... Um, and I've been talking to people about um, 
how important napping is. And, and, and it's funny because people who do podcasts, people who are, you know, journalists, they all are nappers. <laughs> and, and many, many people who live in the world of, you know, making your, making, um, your schedules on your own. And, and, you know, they, a lot of these people are super, um, pro napping. Um, and there's a constant question of like, well, when is society going to learn? And I've been, I've been asked that question since the book came out. And I feel like there's more and more and more people who are, um, convinced. So I do think the tides have turned and I, and I've done a bunch of interviews about, um, pandemic, lifestyle now, right? Because we've been in the pandemic now for a year and um, people are able to, unless they have children who are doing remote school at home, which I do, but um, they're able to set their own um, times, you know, to say like, I'm going to exercise when I want, I'm going to eat when I want, I'm going to sleep when I want. And a lot of that includes napping. Um, and so I do think that there is a, um, a change uh, that is taking place, but it's slow. You know, I mean, the the more people understand that the guy who's taking three cups of coffee for a meeting in the afternoon, who is then going to be totally, you know, wired, not be cognitively sharp um, because he's actually sleep deprived. And then he's not going to be able to sleep that night because he's just tanked himself up with caffeine. Um, and so then he's going to have a shitty day that, sorry, excuse me, a bad day the next day. Um, that guy is not winning, right? That that's not, you don't want that guy on your team because he's not, he does he's not able to go the, go, uh, you know, think clearly and have a clear head, um, because he's going to be sleep deprived chronically. Whereas somebody who's taking like a 15 minute nap and wakes up and is totally present and is able to focus naturally, that's the person you want on your team. Is there a thing that you do prior to an app that helps you get into that state? Because one of the reasons um, I got this project going in the first place, I mean, there's a, there's a few reasons. One was all the scary studies that were coming out about, you know, lack of slow wave sleep and cognitive decline and Alzheimer's and all those kinds of things. But one of the other things that kind of caught my attention was that thanks to what was later diagnosed as restless leg, uh, was meaning that it took me a good hour and a half, two hours to fall asleep sometimes. And so I developed this rather passionate loathing for people who could nap because great, they're talking about a 15 minute nap or a half an hour nap. Well, it took me an hour to fall asleep. So napping was off the table for me. Is there, mm. is there something you do to get you into that state? I mean, I've, I've, I'm one of the kind of people who can just fall asleep. Um, and wake up without any issues. But, um, so can I ask you, to, so, so when you have restless leg, does it also include when you're sleep, when you're napping, do you have it in the daytime as well? Well, so I never, so napping was never an option for me unless I was just so exhausted that I had, I literally had no choice but to lie down. And, you know, sometimes the, I don't want to refer to it as rigors because there are people who actually do rigorous things for a living and I'm not one of them, but the rigors of a morning media schedule, uh, yeah, would sometimes leave me exhausted and I'd have no choice. I'd put, I'd sit down with the intention of watching TV and then... <laughs> You know, um, but now, for whatever reason, uh, it's just gotten, maybe it's because I'm getting older, whatever it is, um, before I started 
uh, medication for the restless leg, uh, Mirapex specifically, um, napping was just never an option. And I've gotten so used to the idea of just having to power through the day, which is one of the reasons why your research jumped out at me the way it did, because I got so used to having to power through the day. I've never even thought about napping for 20 years. It's, it, it's, it hasn't even been something that's occurred to me. Right. Yeah. So, I mean, I would definitely think about it now because if, I mean, so, so can I ask you a question just specifically about the restless leg? Cause I, cause I have a, suspicion that your that restless leg would be increased at night and so you wouldn't necessarily have it interfere with your ability to get to naps but that would be before you were taking the mirapex i guess did you have did you know did you notice that when you took a nap um <clears throat> before mirapex that in the day you would have restless leg interfering with your get ability to take a nap no, because I wasn't con I was never consciously trying to take a nap. I would right. sit down and I would turn the TV on and then the next thing you know I I wake up and it's two and a half hours later. But it interestingly it didn't interfere with your ability to get to sleep in the daytime, but it did at night when you were when you were trying to get to sleep at night. So so even though you were trying to consciously get to sleep at night and you weren't in the day, the fact is that you didn't have interference of restless leg in the day. So I don't know if that's I'm one hundred percent uh, sure that there's very little research on this, but but it could be that napping doesn't that there's a circadian rhythm to restless leg and that it increases during the nighttime, but it doesn't necessarily affect people who are napping during the day. That may or may not be the case, but it's something to investigate. <clears throat> but I would definitely say, you know, as we age, we have a decrease in our circadian rhythm signals, um, and what that means is that our arousal signals that we should have that we should be awake all day long and then our, you know, our sleep signals that we should be going to sleep at this time and staying asleep the whole night, they just decrease. And so older adults are more able to nap um, as we get, I mean, people starting in, you know, 35 actually was really when these changes start to happen. So as we get older, we're more able to take naps. Um, so I would definitely say it's a great idea that, you know, if you're, um, if you want a pick me up in the middle of a day, powering through is 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 um, not necessarily going to make you be performing at your best at the end of the day. But if you took, say, a fifteen minute nap, you could really have you know your best performance lasting throughout the whole day. So you just inspired and sparked an entirely new episode that I've now got to jump on and, and start to figure out who I need to talk to about this idea that restless leg might be tied to circadian. I See, I'm inspired. This is why I knew it was going to be a great time talking to you. Uh, Sarah, <laughs> thank you for making room for us. And, and um, we'll make sure that we link to uh, the book and all of that. Uh, have you, I'm curious, have you updated the book since 2007? I haven't updated it, but I, I, well, I did just do the audible version of it, you know, the, the, the audio version. And I did have to really take out references to cassette tapes. <laughs> um, so there was some updating um, and that should be coming out any day now. Um, but I haven't updated it because it, to be honest, like when I read, it, I'm like, yeah, this is pretty much all still true. Like there, there's nothing that's really changed that much. I could... 
I could update it, but I'm actually I'm writing another book that's coming out um, next year, and it's called The Power of the Downstate. And what it is is really looking at not just sleep, but what are all the ways that we need to restore ourselves every day in order, and I call those things the downstate, in order you know, to replenish our parasympathetic nurse, uh, nervous system, our, our circadian rhythm, sleep, exercise, um, eating, all the different things that we can do every day to support our restorative processes so we can be as strong and as resilient as we need to be in what I call the upstate, which is our daytime. Um, so look out for that one. And I'm happy to talk to you more about that when that comes out. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. You're coming back when that book comes out, but let me get a preview by asking you this question, which is your preferred type of meditation? I have not really gotten too deep into my own meditation. I do slow deep breathing and HRV biofeedback more. So I will really take that just to get into kind of resonant breathing. But I've never really gotten myself into my own meditation uh, practice. So I, I'm into the deep breathing stuff, but I haven't actually sort of locked into a specific practice. Fascinating. Okay. Well, I'm, I'm interested to see where we are between now and when the book comes out. I'm, I'm hoping we can count on you coming back. Thank you so much for making room for this. Thank you. It was really fun. Dr. Sarah Mednick there on the Snooze Button podcast. Uh, no video. You figured that out probably already for this week, but we do have a YouTube channel. That link is on our website as well at thesnoozebutton.com, along with all kinds of other goodies and information for you as well. Follow us on the socials. We're consistently point posting information to the latest in sleep science uh, and uh, links to all of our podcast episodes as well at thesnoozebutton.com. So until we get together next week for another terrific episode, next week features astronaut Nicole Stott, who will answer the question for us, how do you fall asleep the night before you become just the 10th woman in history to walk in space? That coming up next week. Until we get together again, my name's Neil Headley. Hey, get some sleep, would you? 